Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Dennis, one of the pastors here at Garden City. So thankful that all of you are here with us today. This morning, we're continuing in our study of the Old Testament book of Exodus. Over the past five weeks, we've walked through the first six chapters of this Old Testament book. And what we've seen over these five weeks is a new pharaoh rise to power in Egypt. A pharaoh who crafts a narrative of fear around the Israelite people and then uses that narrative of fear to enslave and oppress the Israelites. We've seen the way that four women, by embracing the practice of nonviolent civil disobedience, are able to push back against and resist Pharaoh and to call into question his unjust policies. We've seen how God finds Moses in the wilderness and invites Moses to return to Egypt to confront Pharaoh in the hopes of being able to set the Israelite people free. We've seen how Moses follows God and returns to Egypt and confronts Pharaoh and how it does not go as planned. We saw Moses retreat into isolation and to question God, to call out to him, to cry out and ask, why? Why have you not started yet to save your people? And then last week, Pastor Shaq walked us through how Moses, in his disappointment and confusion, was forced to reckon with whether or not he was following God because of what he believed God could do or because of who he knew God to be. This morning, we're going to find Moses as he returns to Egypt and confronts Pharaoh again. We'll see the way that God begins to demonstrate the fullness of his power to the Egyptians and to the Israelites through the first nine plagues. And we'll use as a thread throughout these nine plagues Pharaoh's choice to harden his heart and in the process destroy himself and his people. So let's pray and then we'll start into our conversation. Father, thank you that we could be gathered together here and in this place. We thank you for the opportunity to lift our voices, to sing words of praise and adoration, and to now turn our hearts to you and your words, believing that they are for us, that we might know you better, and that we might understand how we are to live our lives well in our neighborhoods. So, Father, would you speak to us now? Would you teach us now? Would we become more like you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to start our conversation this morning in the New Testament book, James. There, we read in James chapter 4, where the author, James, who, remember, is Jesus' brother, Quotes from Proverbs 23. This is what James writes. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Now it's 
not the first time that these words appear in the Bible. They appear in seven different places throughout the Bible. First, they appear in the Old Testament book, Psalms. Then they are repeated in Proverbs. Then Jesus quotes them in the Gospel of Matthew. Mary quotes them in the Gospel of Luke as she sings her song of praise after learning that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. James quotes them, and then finally the Apostle Peter quotes them in one of his letters recorded in the New Testament. Now, the reason that I share this is to establish the idea that these aren't peripheral words in the Bible. They're not a peripheral idea. They're a consistent idea, a consistent theme that speaks to a consistent aspect of God's character as revealed from the Old Testament through to the New Testament. And I want to take a moment to make sure that we understand exactly what these words mean. First, the word opposes literally means to wage war against. And the word proud refers to any person who believes they're not dependent on God and who instead chooses to depend on themselves or false gods, in essence, denying their need for God, whether spiritually or materially. So just the first half of that phrase, God wars against those who refuse to acknowledge their dependence on God. Now the second half of that phrase, favor, that word means to exalt or to lift high. And then the word humble carries both a spiritual and a social connotation. Spiritually, it describes people who are gentle and lowly, who aren't pretentious, who recognize their need for and dependence on God. Socially, it describes people who have experienced a kind of humiliation, who've experienced oppression or poverty or injustice or marginalization. So the second half of that phrase, God lifts up those who are lowly and who have been oppressed or marginalized. And it's this truth that God opposes the proud but favors the humble that I want to serve as our interpretive lens as we work through Exodus chapters 7 through 10 in the first nine plagues. In Exodus 7, God sent Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh for a second time. And this time, they do exactly as God has instructed them. Beginning in verse 10, we read, So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers and the Egyptian magicians. Okay, now just to pause here for a moment and to share this. During the course of the week, talking through this passage at home with Julia, I apparently said Egyptian magicians so many times that in my mind, they just went together and I started referring to them as the magicians. No real reason to share that, but thought you might be interested. So the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet 
Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Now, these five verses, they serve as a prologue to the ten plagues, and in them we find a foreshadowing of Pharaoh's ultimate defeat in Egypt's demise. Aaron throws down his staff, and it turns into a snake. Pharaoh gathers wise men and sorcerers, and they too throw down their staffs, and they turn into snakes also. And then, just as God had said would happen, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And it's worth mentioning that it's not really surprising at this point in the Exodus story that Pharaoh chooses to harden his heart. He's oppressed and enslaved an entire people group. He's made their work harsher than it's ever been before. But even more than that, we must remember that in Egypt, Pharaoh is a god. He sees and understands himself as sovereign and all-powerful. And just a few chapters ago in Exodus 3, when Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh for the first time, he responds to their demands by scoffing. To Pharaoh, the God of the Israelites is a no-name God that he's never heard of before. A God who seemingly lives in the wilderness where Moses had been hiding. A God who is so weak that his people are oppressed and enslaved by Pharaoh. And a God whose chosen human representative isn't even a good public speaker. Why in the world, then, would Pharaoh think that this so-called God could possibly be powerful enough to overthrow him? Pharaoh sees what Moses and Aaron can do. He sees that his own magicians can do the same thing, and therefore he chooses to harden his heart and refuse to let the Israelites go. And in so doing, he misses God's clear signal to him that he will be defeated. We see in the story that Aaron's staff turns into a snake that swallows all of the other snakes. In Egypt, snakes were symbols of the power behind Pharaoh's throne. They were symbolic of the power that animated Pharaoh. Snakes were depicted even in Pharaoh's headdress. This encounter then between Moses, Aaron, and the the magicians, it isn't really about who can throw a staff down and have it turn into a snake. It's really about signaling to Pharaoh before the first plague ever comes that he will not win the battle. That Pharaoh is a pretend god, a false god, a man masquerading as a god. And if only he were humble enough to admit what he already knew. If only he were humble enough to see the sign for what it clearly was. He could have saved his people. And in the end himself. But his pride and arrogance ran so deep that even when given such a clear and unmistakable sign, all he could do was harden his heart. The first plague is the plague of blood. Moses is sent by God to confront Pharaoh in the morning while Pharaoh is bathing in the Nile. Moses tells Pharaoh that if he doesn't let the Israelites go, God will turn the water of the Nile into blood, killing everything in it and eliminating the Egyptian people's source of drinking water. 
In Exodus chapter 7, verse 20, we're told Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt, but the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. The Nile was essential to every aspect of Egyptian life. It supplied the water that people drank, the water where people bathed the water that they used for farming and to raise their livestock. The Nile sustained almost every aspect of, Egyptian, of the Egyptian economy and people's lives. Not to mention, a prominent Egyptian god was supposedly sovereign over the Nile. In turning the river water into blood, God, through Moses and Aaron, is clearly demonstrating to the Egyptian people that their so-called river god is no match for him. The first plague, quite literally, attacks every aspect of Egyptian life, social, economic, and religious. But notice Pharaoh's response. His people are digging along the Nile, literally digging for their lives, and he turns his back on them and retreats to his palace. Now, I recognize that the language surrounding Pharaoh's hard heart might be confusing. Because in some places the text reads that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And in other places the text reads that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Either way, the sentiment is clear. Before God does anything, Pharaoh's heart is already marked by pride and arrogance. It's already hardened. In a sense, it's a depiction of what the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. There, Paul writes, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools." and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds and animals and reptiles. It's almost as though these words were written specifically as an interpretation of Pharaoh and Exodus. Pharaoh is the personification of both godlessness and wickedness. He suppresses the truth through his wickedness. He comes face to face with God's power and he still rejects God. 
And because Pharaoh chooses to think of himself as a god, his thinking became futile and his heart became hard. Even though throughout the Exodus story, Pharaoh has postured himself as wise, he's ultimately revealed as little more than a fool who worships false gods depicted as animals and reptiles. And so God, like Paul writes, gives Pharaoh over to his own prideful and arrogant desires. If God is indeed hardening Pharaoh's heart, then he's simply giving Pharaoh over to what Pharaoh has already chosen. Because there are moments throughout the story of the plagues where Pharaoh should have relented. There are moments where even the people closest to him warn him that he's up against something greater than himself. There's the third plague, the plague of gnats, that's recorded beginning in Exodus 8, verse 16. We read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground. And throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. Up until this point, Pharaoh's magicians have been able to recreate the signs and wonders performed by Moses and Aaron. But this time they can't. And even they begin to sense that what is happening is the work of a God who is bigger and stronger than them. I mean, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. And Pharaoh, rather than listen to his advisors, hardens his heart again and refuses to listen. In his foolishness, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. Even though the truth of what is happening is becoming clear, and even though God's divine power is unmistakable, this process continues throughout the rest of the plagues. God demonstrates his power, and rather than acknowledging God for all that he is, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart. And with each plague, greater destruction comes to the land of Egypt and its people. After the gnats comes an infestation of flies, and after that, a disease that kills all of the Egyptian livestock, and then a disease that strikes the Egyptians themselves, causing boils all over their skin, and then terrifying intense storms of thunder and lightning and hail, unlike anything that the Egyptians have ever seen before. It's not until the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, that we see some of Pharaoh's own advisors begin to question his leadership. Moses comes to Pharaoh in Exodus 10, verse 3, and says, This is what the Lord, the God of the Israelites, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will devour what little you have left after the hail including every tree that is growing in your fields. I mean, notice the specific language here. The locusts will come and devour what little you have left 
You have some trees left, Pharaoh. But if you don't relent, even those will be gone. And it's at this point that we finally hear some of Pharaoh's most ardent supporters finally speak up. In verse 7, we read Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go. Do you not realize that Egypt is ruined? Egypt is in ruins. That word ruined is the Hebrew word avad, and it means to be exterminated, to vanish. Take a moment and close your eyes and picture it. Seriously. Egypt has been exterminated. It's vanished. It's a desolate wasteland. All because of one person's pride and arrogance. All because of one person's false claim of sovereignty. Even despite his country laying in ruin, despite his closest advisors begging him to let the Israelites go so that the devastation can finally stop, he's still unwilling to humble himself. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The story of the plagues isn't just a story of a God at war against Pharaoh. He's at war with the entire Egyptian cultural and societal and religious system. God is at war with Egypt because from its topmost political leader to its religious and economic systems to the people who choose to become complicit in Pharaoh's evil and unjust plans, everything in Egypt is set against the ways of God. Pharaoh has set himself as sovereign over all creation and God says, no, I am. And because of that, it all must be opposed until every last system and structure that comprises Egyptian culture and society has been torn down, destroyed, and dismantled. Because ultimately, the root of pride is the rejection of God as sovereign Lord over all creation. Pharaoh's pride and arrogance was rooted in his belief in his own power, authority, and sovereignty over Egypt and all of the Egyptian people. His pride and arrogance, which led to his and all of Egypt's ruin, was founded in his unwavering resolution to cling to his own illusion of power, rather than acknowledge a power far greater than him, a power that had been man made manifestly clear to him through these first nine plagues. Even though God consistently demonstrates his power with clarity that he is sovereign and Pharaoh is not, Pharaoh still refuses to humble himself and let God's people go. 
But what are we supposed to do with this? What does any of it mean for us today? In our local communities and neighborhoods, in this city and in this country. I think this story reminds us that God is sovereign over everything, regardless of whether we know God or not. God is sovereign over the Israelites, he is sovereign over Pharaoh, and he is sovereign over the Egyptian people, and he's sovereign over you and me too. That word sovereign, it really means that God is at all times and in all things present. That word sovereign means present. I think sometimes growing up and throughout parts of my life trying to follow after Jesus, I've heard that word sovereign and I've thought of it primarily in this sense that God is high and far off, that he's distant and removed, that he's looking down on everything and aware of everything that's happening, but not maybe necessarily directly involved in it. Or even maybe that he's a puppet master of some sorts. And yet what we have here is this understanding that sovereign means present. That God is here with us in all things, in all places, with all people. That no one is outside of his presence. No one is beyond his reach. And everything that happens to us, God is present to. And I believe that in God's sovereignty, everything that happens, God ultimately uses to draw us to himself. If God's present in all things, then he's at work in all things. When Moses was confused, disappointed, frustrated, and in pain, God was present and God was at work. If he's present in our suffering, then he's at work in our suffering. If he's present in our brokenness, then he's at work in our brokenness. If he's present when we can't pay our bills, then he's at work when we can't pay our bills. If he's present when we experience devastating rejection or loss, then he's at work when we experience devastating rejection or loss. If he's present, then he's at work. You haven't been forgotten. You haven't been overlooked. You haven't been rejected. You haven't been cast off. You haven't been let go. God is sovereign. And that means he's present. And if he's present, then he's at work. God didn't bring Pharaoh to ruin and Egypt to desolation just so that he could flex his divine muscles. He did it to humble them. He did it to draw them to himself, to win them to himself. Remember, as Pastor Shaq and I have said throughout the past several weeks, the gospel is for the oppressed and the oppressor. In Isaiah 19, the prophet foretells a day when Egypt will turn to God and bow down and worship him. 
Beginning in verse 19, the prophet Isaiah writes, In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And in that day, they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship him. They will make vows to him and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. They will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And then the prophet goes on to say that there will be a highway that runs from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria, which throughout the Old Testament is another nation that is an adversary of God's. And that Assyria will join Egypt in worshiping Yahweh. In Isaiah 19.24, we read, In that day Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. God didn't oppose Pharaoh's or the Egyptians' pride just to destroy them and bring them to ruin. He's not a cruel God. He opposed them to humble them, and in humbling them, to bring them into relationship with himself. Church, we simply cannot read the first 10 chapters of Exodus and come to any other conclusion than God is present in all things and at work in all things. He is first and foremost in the book of Exodus at work to rescue and redeem his people, the Israelites. He is at work recognizing that they are oppressed and enslaved and he, in response to their cries, moves towards them and reveals himself to them and then begins to act in mighty and powerful ways to bring about their liberation. But he's also at work to rescue and redeem his enemies, the Egyptians. Because the gospel is for the oppressed and the oppressor. So, a few questions to leave you with. A few things that I hope this week, today even, that you might take some time to just ponder and process and wrestle through. To give space to hear God speak to you and make himself known to you. First, what does it mean for you to know that God isn't a far-off and distant God, but that he's a God who's present to you in all things? Two, where in your life are you struggling to see God's presence and believe that he's at work? And then lastly, what does it look like for you, as Pastor Shaq taught us last week, to seek to trust God because of who he is rather than what he's done? It 
So we're going to transition now into receiving communion together as a family. And as we do this, I'm going to invite Carrie Buckner up to lead us through receiving communion together.